It's been a really strange offseason. Vis-a-vis dogs running onto the field. You made it. We're not sabermetricians. That's all behind us now. Yeah, I got in trouble, but it was worth it. It was totally worth it. It was worth it. Totally worth it. All right, hello. Welcome to Flushing Transit Authority. I'm your co-host, Jay Bushman, and with me, as always, but still playing out of position, it's Will Stegman. Hey, Will. Hey, Jay. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I haven't dropped any fly balls lately. Well, that makes two of us. (laughs) I can't say the same for some of our favorite uh, Mets. Yeah. Um, You know, I got a, um, a text from a friend of mine on Sunday... Last Sunday when the Mets were playing the Phillies Uh in Williamsport. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. The Mets are playing in a minor league stadium. How appropriate. (laughs) Yep, that makes sense. And I get a text from a friend of mine that just says, Dom Smith. (laughs) And I thought, like, oh, my God, he's been found. (laughs) Like, those milk cartons paid off. Um, And, you know, he... He made an appearance. You know, we were wondering last time we were talking, whatever happened to Dom Smith? Well, he made an appearance on the team. For a couple days anyway. Some of it went well. Some of it went not so well. Not so well. Not so well. We've already covered the good part, a a impressive home run he had against the Phillies on Sunday. But then there was something else that happened. Yeah, and you know, the Mets were on the, which I, it was sometime last week, I don't know, time doesn't really mean anything to me at this yes. point, so I don't remember when it was, was but... They Tuesday were night against the Giants? They were literally on the verge of winning the game. Sorry, Wednesday against the Giants. Fly ball to Dom Smith playing out of position in left field. Um, Rosario is going back on the ball. He's calling for it. Smith is calling for it. Um... Dom Smith runs right into Ahmed Rosario. The ball drops. The Giants score. The Giants would go on to win the game. Yes. And it was, it was, I was watching it, and all I could think was, oh, poor Dom. Like, I just felt so bad for him. Like, it was just awful. You know, for me, I was busy um, doing some stuff. I was wrapping up some work stuff. And I wasn't able to watch and I wasn't listening, but I just had the game day app open on my phone. Mm -hmm. And recently at home, my wife Nina and I have gotten into the habit of we want to follow the game, but the Mets have been getting us down and the world is kind of noisy. So we've gotten into a habit recently of we'll just sit um, at home together and we'll just have the game day app open and we'll kind of narrate the game to each other a half inning at a time. Nice. And so we'll be going through that and, you know, it'll be like, oh, you know, Seth Lugo strikes out, you know, uh, strikes out you know, to end the it, you know, strikes out a batter to end the inning, Mets are coming back up. So we're going through and, you know, that game is being played and I read just the, I'm like, oh, um, pop fly double, giant score, <laughs> because of, and I was like, huh. What does and, that mean? And it says pending, um, you know, official scoring. So I'm like, hmm, I don't know what that means. All I knew is that the Giants tied the game, and it went from, you know, basically the Mets pulling defeat out of the jaws of victory, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize what happened, and I didn't see 
the play until later, and it is such a such a Mets play. Such a Mets play. Such a classic, classic sort of lol Mets. Like, oh my god. The thing that it made me think of right away, and and I spent some time thinking about this. This may actually be the very first piece of Mets lore that I ever heard as a child. Um, and it has a, uh, an interesting sort of um, uh, evolution into why the band Yola Tango is called Yola Tango. Oh, I know, I know this. And so I'm just going to read the Wikipedia entry for Yola Tango because I think it's appropriate. So during the 1962 season, New York Mets center fielder Richie Ashburn and Venezuelan shortstop Elio Chacon found themselves colliding in the outfield. When Ashburn went for a catch, he would scream, I got it, I got it, only to run into Chacon, who spoke only Spanish. Ashburn learned to yell, Yola Tango, Yola Tango, instead. Yola Tango being Spanish for, I got it. Right, roughly translates to, I got it. Roughly translated. Um, So in a later game, Ashburn is going after a, a fly ball, and he starts calling Yola Tango, and Chacon backs off. And so Ashburn relaxes, positions himself to catch the ball, and instead was run over by the left fielder, Frank Thomas, who understood no Spanish, and had missed the team meeting where the words were proposed being used. (laughs) After getting up off the turf, Thomas turns to Ashburn and says, what the hell is a yellow tango? And so when Dom ran into Ahmed, all I could think was Yola Tango, Yola Tango. Now, Ahmed Rosario does speak a little bit of English, so I don't think that was the issue. But we do got to, you know, give Dom a little slack here because if you watch the replays, he's running in and he's calling for it. Right. And Rosario is running back and he's not saying anything. He's using his hand to wave Smith off. And Smith is looking at the and ball. Smith is looking at the ball. He's not looking at Rosario. So should he have been able to see him back up? Absolutely. But it's not, you know, I want to give Dom a little bit of slack. Right. And this is an issue where um, Ahmed Rosario, in his brief major league career, is known for a guy who, I guess the only way to say it is, plays a deep shortstop. Yeah. Like, Ahmed Rosario will go way back on a ball. Mm-hmm. And that's a credit to his athleticism, his speed. You know, you'd like a guy up the middle who can cover some ground. You run into an issue where Dominic Smith, not a natural left fielder. He's not playing out of position. He's only play, He only started a handful of games in the outfield at the major league level. So there are two players. One of them is out of position. I know that they played together in the minor leagues, but they haven't played together recently. They don't have any, right. you know... Yeah. Any sort of, what do you call it? Chemistry is the wrong word. Rapport. They don't have a a communication. That's it. Communication is the word. They don't have that shorthand with each other. Dom Smith probably doesn't know to look for, you know, Rosario signaling. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, miscommunication, ball hits the ground. We all know how it ends. It's hard to blame either of those players. But you're right. Like, that was one of the first bits of sort of... Mets lore, mm-hmm. lol Mets yeah. thing that you get. Like I remember as a kid um, reading about the 62 Mets. You know, there's the the famous book 
Um, was it Jimmy Breslin who put it together called Maybe. The Gang Who Couldn't Shoot Straight? Maybe. Yeah. About the 62 Mets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's filled with stories like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm guessing that a lot of these stories are apocryphal. But you know what? Whatever. <laughs> when the legend becomes better than the truth, print the legend. Yeah. Um, there are just some fantastic you know, old Mets stories. And when people say, like, why do you root for this team? It's hard not to identify with a bunch of people who are trying their best and falling short. <laughs> and the thing that I think about is, you know, one of the sort of patron, patron saints of Metsdom, Marvelous Marv Throneberry. Marvelous Marv. What a name. Right? Marv Throneberry. And now what people forget, because the name Marv Throneberry, you think of the 62 Mets. Marv Throneberry was a huge prospect. Marv Throneberry was a big piece of the Yankees Mm. farm system. Like, Marv Throneberry, as a minor leaguer, was incredible and was supposed to be, I'm not saying he was supposed to be the next Mickey Mantle, but he was supposed to be a solid major league contributor. And it shows you that, you know, the gap between being able to play in the minor leagues and being able to play at a major league level is the biggest gap. Didn't they get, wasn't he a deadline deal acquisition in 69, if I Oh, no, no, you're thinking of, uh, you're thinking of, uh, Thromberry was on the 62, maybe oh, 63 okay. teams. Um, you're thinking of uh, Don Clendenin. Don Clendenin. Who right. came, who yeah. came from the Expos. That was a whole other story. Right. But Clendenin was a deadline deal from the Expos. Ah, okay. Uh, and then was an actual valuable piece of the of the Mets <laughs> puzzle. Too marvelous, Marv. And yeah, my, I've told I've I've mentioned this in the past. My dad always mentions his favorite sign that he ever saw. It's it's a little highbrow. Yeah, but uh, someone once had a sign at Shea that said "Marvelous Marv Thornberry, twice as good as the Ancient Mariner." He stopped with two of three. <laughs> um, I guess not much with the defense. No, with Marvelous Marv. No, no, and you know you don't get a lot of like you know Samuel Coleridge references <laughs> at your Mets games for my money. You know, perhaps the Mets could use the Ancient Mariner out there. Uh, there, uh, you know, make a trade for King Felix. You never know. Oh, boy. It's hard. It's (laughs) tough to see Felix Hernandez struggling. Yeah. Um, But there's a famous story about Marv Thromberry and the 62 Mets where um, Marv Thromberry hits a triple in the the polo grounds. Just hits it deep to the polo grounds and gets the third base and the second base umpire calls him out for missing second base. And the story as it goes is Casey Stingle slowly starts working himself out of the polo grounds dugout to go argue with the umpire, and his first base coach stops him and says, forget it, Casey, he missed first as well. <laughs> now... Yeah, that sounds about right. Again, is it? did it happen? Maybe. Who knows? But it's the perfect early Mets story. Yeah. And those are our, those are our boys. But, I mean, the other thing to, to factor in is that, you know, they may have all of these ridiculous things happen to them. But even when that's the case, a lot of times, they're just fun. They're a fun team to watch. And the really interesting thing that's happened in the past, i say, two or three weeks, after a horrendous middle of the season, and if you have any you know, doubt or you don't remember, go back and listen to a, a few podcasts ago and, and hear the despair in our voices. Well, yeah. But suddenly the Mets are kind of fun again. I don't know what happened. I don't know if 
uh, two weeks ago, we sat down and we did a little psychological experiment. Yes. And it's funny because that felt very cleansing. It did. And, you know, we've heard from a few listeners who, uh, who found that really, really helpful uh, for their own um, um, issues with their own teams. Which yes. Which is great to hear. Yes. Um, yeah, I saw... Um, you know, some, some very positive feedback yes. along the lines of like, oh, this is cathartic. Yeah. So thank you, <laughs> those of you who listened and played along and those of you who are fans of other teams who understand the feeling. But I feel like that was cathartic. And yeah. I just sort of let out all of my frustration about the team. And since then, I've been having a good time watching the Mets again. As much as I would love to sit here and say, yes, our little podcast and our little exercise was the thing that made us feel better. I don't feel like we can take the credit away from the person who I think is most responsible for this turn of fortune, and that's Jeff McNeil. You know what? It's not every day that a 27-year-old rookie without a knob on his bat (laughs) can turn things around, but Jeff No Knob McNeil... He's been doing it. Well, I mean, I think the really fascinating thing about adding McNeil to this team is the man just hits. He hits singles. He hits doubles. He doesn't have much power. I don't care. Like, what has been what has been my mantra since we started this podcast? I don't care if they win. I care if they're boring. And they've been boring as they sit around and everyone tries to hit home runs and everyone strikes out all the time. And suddenly... We've got a single and doubles hitter. Um, Rosario is hitting singles and doubles. Um, Kevin Ploiecki has figured out how to hit singles and doubles. Mm-hmm. And you string together a bunch of actual like base hits. That's exciting. Yes. Now, um, McNeil is reminding me of the young Daniel Murphy before his power developed. Mm -hmm. You know, Daniel Murphy, earlier in his career, would hit, you know, 10 to 12 home runs before he really developed his power. Um, And that's what McNeil reminds me of, a sort of high on base percentage, Mm -hmm. um, guy who's just, he's got some gap power, and there's no other way to say it. He's he's kind of fun to watch. I, you know, I have to say one of my best memories of a Mets game. Um, I believe it's the 2000 NLCS against the Cardinals. I think it's game four where they opened the game with five consecutive doubles. Yes. Like home runs are great. Yes. Home runs are wonderful and cathartic and exciting. But when you keep sending people up to bat, they keep hitting one after the next, after the next, there is this feeling of, Hey, we can do anything. Yeah. And, and I miss that, and I want more of that from this team. There's, that, there's this mistaken belief amongst old-timey baseball watchers that home runs kill rallies, which is ridiculous. A home run is the best thing you can do in baseball. However, you have a point when you're hitting, you're just hitting singles and doubles because there's always movement and yes. there's always somebody on base and there's no... You know, there's no time for the defense to reset. There's a slow ratcheting up of the tension and the pressure on the pitcher. Whereas a home run, it's like, bam, it happens and it's over. And then, but you can also, as a pitcher, be like, take a breath, put it behind you, start over. Right. But when you're constantly drip, drip, dripping, like putting the pressure on on, on the defense, that's really exciting. Right. Um, 
Now this uh, we should we should point out is that building an offense around the three run home run was Sandy Alderson's plan, right? And he was always sort of pretty straightforward about that. Um, it will be interesting to see um, with whoever they bring in next to run the team whether or not they continue that uh, philosophy or they move to a more balanced offensive philosophy. I really, really hope they do. Just because home runs are, you know, boring. Yeah, well, I don't necessarily agree that they're boring, but this... offense built on home runs with 11 million strikeouts as the consequence, that's boring. Yes. And now you have to look at, like, in baseball right now, um, you know, I look at strikeout totals, and I see them as largely irrelevant, or not irrelevant, but can't be compared to historical numbers. Sure. Because you know your strikeouts per nine innings is simply much higher because of the way the game is played now. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens, you know, when you are a team that is not succeeding in the prevailing paradigm, which is we're going to strike out, but we're going to hit home runs. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you counter that? Yeah. How do you go the Billy Bean method and find what is not being valued yeah. that we can get at a decent price and make that work? Sandy's not wrong. Um, actually, I should say this. Sandy Alderson's p- approach doesn't work for this team. Mm-hmm. Um, he, of all people should understand that he has to find value where other teams are ignoring it. And that value may be that sort of gap hitter speed yes. on base percentage. And if memory serves, that, that Mickey may have actually addressed this in one of his uh, post-game uh, interviews in the past week where he talked about, um, and, the, and the broadcasters picked up on this, like Jay Bruce and Todd Frazier like have 10, 15 uh, at least hits this year where if they're still in Cincinnati, they're home runs. Yeah. But at City Field, they're long fly ball outs. Well, well, there was a game um, when the Mets played the uh, played that makeup game against the Yankees yeah. where, um, was it Jose Batista mm-hmm. hit a home run that was a deep fly ball at City Field. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's the stadium that... Right. The Mets play in. So build your offense around where you're playing. And, I mean, more, and this, I think, also might be related to how their road record is always higher than their home record. Well, the other thing about the Mets is not only build your offense around your stadium, build your defense around your stadium. Because the thing that has become apparent, and hey, you know what? The Dom Smith play on Sunday, not on Sunday, on Wednesday is case in point. The Mets are not athletic. And... We were talking about this sort of off mic earlier, so we may as well get into it now. <laughs> the, Met, the Mets do not have a team that is built to support their pitching staff and to play in their stadium. Yeah. The Mets need, in the, let's just get down to it here, why is Dominic Smith playing in the outfield? Jay Bruce, who returned last night, yeah. um, if Jay Bruce's natural position is right field, why, why are they talking about him playing first base? Yeah. When Dominic Smith, who is 23 years old, and a guy who, look, it's time for the Mets to see what you have with him. They're, they're destroying, not destroying, but you know they've got to be killing his confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, this has got to be a 
consider it just a lost season. Yeah, and you know what? I know he had a rough go of it when he came up last year. Mm -hmm. But clearly, playing at AAA is not helping him. And at this point, look, this season has been over since June. Why we didn't, after the Mets went 5-21 and in June, why you didn't call up Dominic Smith and just put him at first base is beyond me. I think I have an answer. Okay. And, and I think, I hope, I hope I have an answer for this. Because if this isn't what's happening, then we're in bigger trouble than we think we are. But you're absolutely right. The roster is not constructed well. All of this stems from the signing of Cespedes. That Cespedes in left field forces Conforto to move. Yeah. Then, you know, signing Bruce pushes Conforto to center. The advent of Nimmo pushes Conforto. Like, there are all these pieces that don't fit because we got Cespedes and not a pure center fielder. Right. Now, that overflow goes to first base. But in the long run, yes, we want to find out what Dominic Smith can do. But we're never going to have the longer term roster construction where we want it unless we move some contracts. Yes. Now, and right now, you can't trade Jay Bruce anywhere. You have to play him so he can reestablish his value. And in the short term, that's more important than finding out what you have with Dom. You have to do that so we can either trade him or trade someone else. So we or you know, this is I think why they just put Flores at first base. Yeah. I would be very surprised if Wilmer is on this team next year. Yeah. Um, but you have to build that value so they can move them, so then they can move things around and construct the roster. I hear you, and I and you're right. In the Cespedes signing, as a fan, if the Mets didn't bring Cespedes back, we would have pitchforks and torches yes. and run to burn down City Field. Yes. In retrospect, you're correct, but at the time... All evidence pointed to, if the Mets want to contend, this is the piece they've got to bring back. We've seen, due to a number of reasons, why that hasn't worked out. The, I mean, it, it seems like, and I, I don't know this 100% for sure, but it seems like the real mistake wasn't bringing Cespedes back. The real mistake was spending the money. I, and I, I think Jay Bruce is a fabulous player, but I think it's pretty clear in retrospect they should have spent that money on Lorenzo Cain, who was I, available and can play center field. And saw, I mean, how long have we been going without an actual true center fielder that impacts the defense, that pushes your corner uh, fielders around? Like, like it uh, goes back to roster But if you, if you sign Lorenzo Cain, um, where does Michael Conforto play? He plays right. Cespedes plays left. And when Cespedes gets hurt... But you're assuming... You're assuming in the offseason that Cespedes is getting hurt. Obviously, the Mets are assuming Cespedes well, is talking, healthy. I'm talking in hindsight. Well, like, you know what? We should all become hindsight GMs. But that's, but that's the point of building your roster correctly. And having flexibility. Happens, yeah. You have the flexibility to, to deal with it. Um, right. I mean, the other thing that, that killed us is the yearly Juan Lagares injury, which every year they're like, well, he's a fourth outfielder. We don't know where we're going to fit him. And every year, the first two months, he's like, oh, my God, he's like, we're so lucky to have him. Then he gets hurt and everything falls apart. Yes. You know, so looking at the team as it's currently constructed, what I'm really worried about is 
Right now, the Mets are actually playing some competitive baseball. They are. They've been solid for the past two weeks. Yeah. It's been fun to watch. They're they're winning some games. Mm-hmm. They're they're. It's a good time. What I worry about is the New York Mets management looking at this and saying, "Hey, we got buried from having a terrible June, but we righted the ship. So let's go into 2019." I don't think they can do that. I think I mean they need to hire a new GM in the off season, and whoever comes in. They're going to have their own plans. They're going to have their own their own system. They're going to have their own need to make a splash. Yeah. So they can't just keep going the way they're going. I think the question becomes, you know, this is the thing that we were talking about last month that we've kind of let drop because there's nothing we can do until it happens. Like, is it a partial teardown or is it a full teardown? And I feel like right now there are... Three untouchables on the Mets. Now, there are more, but some of them are untouchable because of contracts. Right. But there are three players that need to be on the Mets on opening day 2019. And I don't care who else is there. Right. And the three players I want on the Mets on opening day are Jacob deGrom, Noah Syndergaard, and Zach Wheeler. Zach Wheeler has really... And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind you that and it, earlier this this Oh, year, I know. You said on this mic... Like, 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 you can never count on Zach Wheeler yep. like turning into anything. Absolutely, and boy, did Zach Wheeler prove me wrong. Yeah. And you know, my thing about Zach Wheeler, for you know, he was injured, mm-hmm. but it seemed like he was just constantly on a three-two count. Mm-hmm. He was constantly at ninety pitches through five innings, and either through his pitch pitch selection or better control, he has been. I think right now what we're seeing is peak um, Zach Wheeler. Yeah. Like, I don't think that Zach Wheeler is going to become Jacob deGrom, but seeing Zach Wheeler as a solid number two, number three starter on not only the Mets, but could fit in on any team. Um, yeah. Let me add a fourth player to that must-have, and mm-hmm. I think with what Ahmed Rosario has shown the Mets um, with his improved plate discipline, um, I think, and his ability to, to uh, steal some bases. Um, Amen Rosario is the fourth player who I think needs to be on the team on opening day next year, and everybody else is interchangeable. Is, is, is fungible. I mean, and I would even potentially think about moving a couple of those people depending on what you could get back. Well, I think Wheeler is the person that you can get the most back from yeah. because... Um, his relative age. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, again, if he gets moved, he gets moved. Um, I think Syndergaard, with his injury history, is uh, too difficult to move, and their window to move him for some value um, is has passed. And Jacob deGrom, well, I just love Jacob deGrom, and I don't want to see him go anywhere. I'll tell you something that this season has taught me that I, I don't necessarily think I believed beforehand. And that's the value of spring training. We've seen a number of players on this team. Uh, specifically, I'll, 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 I'll call out three. Uh, Michael Conforta, Jason Vargas, and Dominic Smith, who missed huge chunks of spring training or the beginning of the season because of injury. Dom never got back on track because he's still hitting in Las Vegas, which 
I can't wait for them to get out of Las Vegas next year. So let's sort of put that to the side. But Vargas missed first two months? Yeah. Well, Vargas, Vargas, no, I know exactly when Var Vargas and made his first appearance on April 28th in San Diego because I was there and he got shelled. Yeah. But he missed. But he also had an injury in spring training. He missed half of spring training. Yeah. He missed the first month of the season. And Conforto missed all of spring training and the first month of the season. And he has been he's been very slow to come back while playing at the major league level. Yeah. Vargas has been getting shelled for months until now. Yes. And like, if you had told me that in late August, Jason Vargas and Robert Gazelman would combine on a four-hit shutout against the Washington Nationals, and nobody would care. Right. I never would right. believe that. It's, you know, the Washington Nationals who... Um, are having a worse year who, than we are, even though their record... Even bad. though they've won a couple more games. Um, yeah, the Nationals this week, um, with apologies to friend of the podcast, Tom Bridge, um, waved the white flag this yes. week by um, sending Daniel Murphy to Chicago and also, was it Matt Adams who yeah. went, who uh, was traded? Yeah. And also put, you know, Bryce Harper was yeah. put on waivers. Yeah. Now I know that teams put everybody on waivers, mm -hmm. but the idea that the Nats ran Harper through waivers and the Dodgers claimed him. Uh -huh. Could you imagine oh God, a no. Dodgers team Ugh. in the last month of the season with Manny Machado and Bryce and Harper? Bryce Harper? Jeez. Um, I, I, would, I wonder, because you know that when they made the claim, <laughs> the Nationals had to call the Dodgers yeah. and be like, right. what do you want to do here? Do do? Like, what do you think the Dodgers offered for essentially a five-week rental? Yeah. Of um, of Bryce Harper, the Dodgers, who by the way are are fading. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. But could you imagine a team with basically the two of the best? I would say the second and third best offensive players: <laughs> Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, and actually I would put. I would value Machado over Harper because of his position, yeah. but that's just me. Mm -hmm. uh, but could you imagine one team having, it's it's like having Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig yeah. on one team. Yeah. It's, honestly, it's amazing. I, I found myself happy to see the Cubs potentially repeating a mistake that the Mets often make, which is obviously the Cubs are still scarred by what Daniel Murphy did to them in 2015. So we're going to get so him. we're going to get him, even though it's three years later and a microfracture surgery on his knee later. Like, is he the same guy he was in 2015? And the thing about Daniel Murphy is when Daniel Murphy is on your team, the problem is Daniel Murphy is on your team. Yes. Now, I love what Daniel Murphy brings to, um, to the plate. But Daniel Murphy has always said that he's not a defender. Remember, there was a story that would circulate about the uh, about Daniel Murphy when he was coming up to the organization, and it was a, he was playing in like a futures game, and each player would get up, you know, would get on camera and say like, "I'm so and so, and this is my position," and 
Daniel Murphy just said, Daniel Murphy, cleanup hitter. <laughs> like, no mention of position, because for Daniel Murphy, you know, it's, you know, you think about Ted Williams. Did you watch, there's um, an American Masters that was on PBS a couple of weeks ago about Ted Williams? I, I highly recommend it. It's huh. very good. Um, and it's mostly about sort of Ted Williams, the man. Mm. Um, and thankfully, it spends very little time on the sort of afterlife which I was very happy for. But it spent a lot of time on Ted Williams' just fascination with hitting and how defense was purely <laughs> secondary and how, as a young player, he would stand in the outfield and work on his swing, like, wow. during games. <laughs> like, he would just be out there. You can't see this, listeners, but I'm sort of mining, I'm miming you know, Ted Williams in the outfield working on his swing in between pitches. Um... That's the kind of player that Daniel Murphy is. It's like I'll go play defense, but I'm just thinking about the next time I get up to the plate. And then the other that's thing about how we play defense, that's the, for sure. The other thing about Daniel Murphy that we saw with Ahmed Rosario this year is the tendency to want to do everything. Yeah. Daniel Murphy, when it was a slow ground ball hit to him, was thinking, "How do I make the flip to second base so we can turn a double play?" Not how do I make sure I grab this baseball? Got to catch it first before you can do anything else. And yeah. boy, and you know, and again, it, I always keep bringing this up, and it's because I was there. Never more painful than Game Four of the 2015 World Series. Again, I couldn't have made that play. I don't meet. I don't look. You put me at second base, you may as well just put a matador up there because that's just ole. Everything is going past me. I am not catching a thing. Um, when I played organized baseball, look, I was a right fielder. Like, they would not let me anywhere near the infield because I was as scared of the ball. Um, so I can't do that. Who am I to judge? Daniel Murphy, if you're listening, and I know you are, you're a better baseball player than I will be at anything, but I'm a fan, and this is all I have to do. Yeah. So... Hey. We get to judge, though. We especially get to judge when he says stupid things yes. about segments of the population that he doesn't know anything about. This is true. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, yeah, the Cubs are like, hey, if we get that guy, he can't do this to us. Yeah. 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 Um, we will always have the 2015 NLCS to look yes. back. To look back on. And, you know, as I look at the rest of the league right now. You know, not only... like six weeks left in the season? Just about. About five weeks left. Not only are the Mets fun to watch, and the Mets have a chance to... The Mets have six games left against the Phillies. Mm -hmm. The Mets can determine whether or not the Phillies make the postseason. How many of those are in Philadelphia? I I think it's a 3-3 split. Because, I don't know if you've noticed this, but they've played the Phillies a lot in the past month in Philadelphia. Mm Mm-hmm. And whenever they're there, there's this one guy, it sounds like a kid, actually, who is sitting probably right next to wherever one of the ballpark mics is, and he just goes, let's go Phillies, over and over again, for the whole game. And I have heard this, it's especially noticeable on the radio broadcast. It's, it's horrifying. It's like... Shut up. It's like a Vuvuzela with language. It's just, it's, and I found myself wondering, like, maybe he's a ghost. Maybe he's like a ghost 
that can't leave Citizens Bank ballpark, then all he can do is make that chant over and over again. It's like the worst Decemberist song ever. <laughs> I think that actually there's a workaround for it because the Phillies radio team yeah. and whoever is setting things up there, they know about this. <laughs> so if you turn to the Phillies radio broadcast, you don't hear it. Uh, but then you have to listen to the Phillies radio broadcast. Yeah, exactly. Seriously, I feel like, can we get that kid and Marlins man and just like pack him off somewhere together? Uh, just... Well, even Marlins man is bailed on the Marlins. <laughs> um, the other thing that I've really enjoyed about the, the team has been, um, I've been going back and forth there's been a weird glitch that's come up with the MLB app. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I the, thought it was only me. You keep, I don't know if anybody else has experienced this, but every time I go to load the audio of a game, because I use the, like when I want to watch on TV, I'll just watch on TV, but I do a lot of listening to radio because I'm commuting or I'm working. And I, so I miss that. So what I sort of keep running into is every time I go to load the audio for a game, I get a thing that says playback failed. Now, I've been using the MLB app for, for as long as it's been around. Mm-hmm. And it's really frustrating, and yeah. I have to keep stopping and loading the audio. So what I've been doing is actually, because I've got unlimited data, not to brag, mm-hmm. but I'll just run the video feed and just put my phone face down. Mm-hmm. And I'll, like, I'll, when yeah. I'm driving. So I'll run the video feed and I'm not looking at it because I'm driving and I'll just put through the aux you know, cord yeah. so I can hear the audio. And um, Gary and, and Keith especially, and you know, when they're all in the booth together for home games, Gary, Keith, and Ron are terrific. Mm-hmm. And late in the season when there's nothing on the line <laughs> and they're just telling stories, yeah, like, it's a great time just to hear them talking. You know, speaking of the Mets radio broadcast, I saw this, uh, this news story yesterday and it made me so excited and so hopeful. I don't know if you saw this, but apparently the Mets are working on a deal so they will be on a different radio station next year. But they'll move from 710 WOR oh, thank to 880 WCBS. Thank goodness. Look, and I just... Oh, I'm, I'm not afraid to get political here no. because I feel very strongly about my politics. Um... I am an absolute bleeding heart liberal, um, and it pains me that every time I listen to a Mets game, that I have to hear ads for Sean Hannity mm-hmm. and Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. Um, to say nothing of Len Berman and what's his name, yeah. who who know Michael Creedle, yeah, they may whatever. be good people. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> um, Len Berman, you know, I've watched him for years. I got nothing against the guy, but I just I cannot stand the the tenor yeah. of that awful. station. It's awful. So I, so now there's always a chance whenever, you know, they move stations, what that means is that the new station has to make deals with all the broadcasters. Can't imagine they would not like open the bank to make sure Harry Rose is still there. But you know, Josh Lewin, who we've come to be very fond of over yeah. the past few years, Wayne Randazzo, who does the pre and post game, like, yeah. you know, I mean, this is, this goes back to uh, how much do we miss Ed Coleman? Yes. Yeah. Ed Coleman was a WFAN employee, and when they moved to 710, he did not go with them. Right. Um, yeah, I would like, I've really come to, to like what Harry Rose brings to the game. You know, for me, 
you know, the voice I hear in my head is still Bob Murphy because that's what I grew up with. And, you know, from my dad, it was Ralph Kiner, Lindsay Nelson and Bob Murphy on TV and radio. But for me, as a kid, TV was Ralph Kiner and Tim McCarver, the occasional Fran Healy, can of corn, um, and some other odds and ends who can't. Rusty Staub was there for a while. Steve Zabriskie. Zabriskie. I'm sure we can go through a a laundry list. But the radio, for me, um, from like the mid-80s on, was Bob Murphy, Mm -hmm. Gary Cohen. Yeah. And so when Gary moved over to TV and Howie Rose, who had been waiting in the wings forever, got the radio gig, I was like, I don't know about this. And he's done a great job. Like, he has really grown into, you you look at Howie Rose and you think, this is the job that this guy was born to do. Plus, Howie Rose is also an amazing hockey announcer. Oh, really? Yeah. Howie Rose, um, I know you're not a, no, a big hockey fan, but Howie Rose has Howie Rose's most famous call is a hockey call. Really? Um, yeah, look up Howie Rose for the 1994 New York Rangers. Mm. Um, Howie Rose, and for a while he he has done the New York Islanders broadcasts. Mm. Howie Rose is one of the best hockey announcers mm. in in the sport. But to see him. Call the Mets as a New York kid, mm-hmm. as a kid who used to go and sit in the general admission upper deck seats at Chase Stadium. I highly recommend if you haven't read, put it in the books. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't read it yet, but it's, it's on my list. Yeah, put it in the books is a great read. After the 2015 season, when I was just oh, the Mets are, it's always going to be great. Yeah, I was just eating up mm-hmm. any bit of like Mets sort of um, ephemera. Any any yeah any memoir, any story about the Mets. So I read, put it in the books. It's a great story mm. about a guy who, you know, Howie Rose is as close to one of us yeah. as you're going to get. He grew up a fan and he's, he's, he's describing the games to us. I've really come to like that. And for Howie, if he's not there, I'm really going to feel like something is missing. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know what, you know, look, the team is the team. I'm rooting for the players, but they gotta, they gotta bring Howie. Over. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Like he's so established there. I will say, I, I, you know, I also grew up on on Ralph Kiner and Tim McCarver, but for and, and Gary Keith and Ron are great. But for me, the platonic ideal. There was a period in the late '90s, and this corresponds with the '99 team, when it was um, Gary and Howie in the radio booth. Yeah. And the two of them in the radio booth together may be the best broadcasting team I've ever heard. Well, because they have such a deep knowledge of the team. And Gary Cohen, you forget, like Gary Cohen knows a lot about a lot of things and can speak intelligently about a lot of things. And And because it's radio, they just get to talk and talk and talk and talk, whereas TV is a little more, you know, directing the action. Right. Supplementing yeah. and, and, and filling spaces, yeah. But those those two in the radio booth together were really special. There's a thing that's been going on. It's it, you'll see it on if you go to the SNY site, the SNY TV site. They've been doing a thing recently where you know this is Gary Cohen's thirtieth year um, doing play by play in you know for the Mets. So he's been doing sort of a um, look back 
thing. And he's been talking about some great moments in Mets history. And there was one that was put up this week about what I think is a top five great moments in Mets history, which is Bartolo Colon's home run in San Diego. (laughs) And the beauty of it is that Gary says, this was the thing that I thought was impossible. (laughs) Like this, like, and you remember his call, it's like the impossible just happened. Yes. Um, which actually reminds me of another great call in Mets history that is never going to get its due. Um, But yesterday on the broadcast, Howie mentioned that it's the third anniversary of David Wright returning against the Phillies in 2015. And I was at work that day, and I was listening to the audio broadcast, and I I get chills thinking about that. And as Josh pointed out to Howie, Howie said, holy smokes, following (laughs) that upper deck home run. And it's such a, um, it's such a Howie Rose thing to say. Yeah. Um, and I think back and I went and I found the clip, just the pure joy in Howie's voice, Mm -hmm. both as, um, an announcer and as a fan, yeah. um, as someone who had followed and how he, I'm sure, has known David Wright since the day he signed with the organization, to see him come back and to do that was a huge moment for him. As a fan, it was huge for me. And there was a lot of talk last night about sort of David Wright's future. Um, David Wright, as uh, Mets fans know, played a couple of... Um, Played a couple of minor league games. Mm-hmm. We've said before that the saddest phrase in baseball is David Wright has resumed baseball activity. Yes, yes. But I've come around and it's like if David Wright wants to try to get himself on the field, well, good for him. And this is an answer to one of your oft-asked questions, which is why is Jose Reyes still on the team? <laughs> So we're a week away from September 1st and the roster's expanding when it's not a big deal anymore. Right. And I'm convinced they're just holding on on the off chance that Wright can make it back this season and they can play a game with both Reyes and Wright on the field at the same time. All we have left right now are marketing events and that would be a marketing event that would make people feel good and then they can part ways with Jose Reyes. Right. Put a little bow on it. I I hear that. It's like the NFL equivalent of when a player signs a one-day contract to retire with his former team. That's a thing that NFL teams do a lot. I mean, it's one of those things, and this is now, it might be because I've, I've, I've gotten older and I've grown up and I've done a lot of work in various parts of the entertainment industry, but I remember there used to be always this sort of like sense of anger about like, oh God, what are they doing? They're just doing this for the marketing. God, marketing is important. Marketing gets people to the games. <laughs> like it's not, marketing isn't a lesser part of the operation. Everything else could be working and you'd have no marketing. No one's showing up. Well, think about movies. Yeah. Movie, yeah, you know what you need? You need a good script. You need a good performance. But if you don't let people know this movie's out there, nobody's going to see it. I went to uh, City Field last season and just, you know, get a soda. And they're like, hey, do you want the regular cup or the commemorative cup 
for a dollar more. Mm-hmm. And I was like, give me the commemorative cup. I'm going to commemorate this soda. Yeah, I want to, like, and essentially I'm going to still throw the cup out when I'm done. Yeah. But, so they give me a, a cup with my Diet Coke in it, and it's a David Wright Jose Reyes cup. Whoa. And I'm like, have these been sitting in storage Pretty since much. 2011? Yeah. Like, are they holding on just so they can get rid of that stash of hey, cups? Hey, Maury, we got those cases of cups back in level three. Let's let's try and move those, clear hey, it out. Let's get rid of those Reyes Wright cups. We need to move those. And we ordered all those Ahmed Rosario Dom Smith cups. We're going to need to, like, get rid of those, too. What if the Mets' entire roster construction is based on cups? I would not be surprised. Like, they sign... Jay Bruce, because they put all of their money mm-hmm. into Jay Bruce cups. Boy, those Devin Mesoraco cups are going to keep people up at night. Uh, I'm not... I, look, this is my new conspiracy theory. Yeah. The Mets roster construction is based on cups. Okay, well, I'll buy that. We have this... Totally. We have this figured out. We just okay. cracked the code. Right, Podcast over. Good, Good night, everyone. Good night. Put it in the books. Yeah, this this, uh, this sounds like it's a good place to wrap it up. You know what? But let's do one last segment. One last segment. One last segment. Right, let's one last thing in let's here. call it unpopular Mets opinions. Okay. Um, my number one unpopular Mets opinion, mm-hmm. and I've been chewing on this for years now. Okay. And I'm just gonna come out and say this: not a fan of the seven line. Seven Line Army. I'm a fan of the subway. Mm-hmm. I like the Seven so Line. great. I am not a fan of the Seven Line Army um, as, as it is perceived. Mm-hmm. Look, I've met people who sit with them or people who identify as part of that. And every one of them, in my experience, has been a good person who is a real diehard true fan of the team. I've heard some horror stories about some of the people who are a part of that. Really? And I can't speak, I've never been treated poorly, Mm -hmm. but I I will take people who said that they have been, I take them at their word. Mm -hmm. And you know, with any group, you're gonna have some people who are jerks. I just, I'm not a fan of creating strata of fandoms. Mm -hmm. And when you hear the players Um, When they thank the fans, specifically thanking that group of fans Mm -hmm. or that fan, that group of fans getting cited in the media Mm -hmm. and that group of fans being able to sell merch at the stadium, Mm -hmm. that creates a caste system of fandom, Mm -hmm. which I do not like because for me, every fan is valid. Now, what I'm to be fair, that group of fans, Seven Line Army fans who travel and are diehards, they are, I'm not saying they're not fans, they are a valid group of fans, but I do not appreciate the media attention that that group gets and the impression that that somehow represents all Mets fans. This is the thing I've seen before in other places, and and, and especially this happens in online fandoms mm-hmm. a lot, where you know, you'll have a group of fans and they will give themselves an identity and a name and then other fans who are not part of that group, even though even though the group would say they're totally welcome, mm-hmm. don't feel like they're part of the yeah. group. And then they start to resent, like, well, maybe I'm not good enough. And, and you know, it's a it can be challenging to keep a, a fandom, any fandom, completely open and not sort of wade into these kind of 
caste systems and, and subgroup yeah. conflicts. The thing that, that drives me crazy, really, is the fact that there is a group of fans that has a kiosk at City Field and has merch. If memory serves, though, isn't that the other way around, though? Like, didn't they start selling shirts? Like they, Seven Line started selling shirts online, yes. and then they became so oh, popular. They oh, got you're, a kiosk you're absolutely right. It, it started yeah. as as yeah. a sort of grassroots thing, yeah. and I and I, I as I said, I I admired their passion. The thing that I, I that bothers me is that from an outsider's perspective and from a media perspective, they are seen as like the vanguard of Mets fandom when there are plenty of people who just choose to sit on their own and follow the team whose fandom is just as valid. And when you allow a group to, you know, to have a presence in the stadium, you are saying as an organization that that group of fans is more important. So if this is the unpopular opinion segment, I will, I will chime in with something which is related, I think. Mm -hmm. Because it's a similar thing, but I think it might be an example of doing that correctly. I am very charmed by the things that the Yankees fans do with the judges' chambers, where they have that one little section mm -hmm. of fans that show up and they wear judges' robes, and every time Aaron Judge hits a home run, they like all stand up and the signs are all rise. The thing that makes it charming is it's a small group. Yes. And it's not the same people every day. And I don't know how they manage that. And I don't right. know, you know, like who controls, who gets to sit there. But it's a different group every time. It's different people every time. And that feels like, a, oh, hey, this is a fun thing you can do at the ballpark if you are so inclined. Right. And I know I forget which justice is a Yankees fan, but they like included a Supreme Court justice once. I can't remember if it was Elena Kagan or Sonia Sotomayor. But that's just cool, and that's right. fun, but it's also not this, like, big army that's like, wow, we're all here. It's just this very small, cute little cosplaying group. Um, that's sure. fun. Yeah. You know, and I've always... There have been groups of Mets fans mm -hmm. who have organized in small ways. Okay, here's my pitch now. I think we should create a, a, uh, a rival group. Okay. And we're going to call ourselves the Mercury Mets. And we're going to dress like the Mercury Mets from that, like, crazy promotion from the 90s. Turn ahead the clock day. Yes. And I think you have to limit it to nine people per game. Yes. Yes. But I'm calling dibs on the third eye. The Ricky <laughs> Anderson third eye and pointed ears. That's what I want. Is it possible to get a Mercury Mets jersey? It probably is. They probably have many, many boxes behind the cups. Oh, boy. Because yeah. I would pay not good money, but I would pay... Mediocre oh, money. Mediocre money for a Mercury Mets jersey. <laughs> All right, I think we should go look into that. All right. Well, this has been Unpopular Mets Opinions. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you're a Seven Line member, enjoy the game. Mm -hmm. And thank you for dropping the thunder sticks. That yes. was really the worst part. And you know what? I appreciate your passion. And hey, thanks for traveling. Mm -hmm. But, you know, let other people sit with you. Yeah. You know? Anyway, look, I'm just a, I'm just an old bitter Mets fan. What do you want me to do? But Jay, I think this is probably our penultimate 
episode of the season. I yeah. think we got one more of these in us, unless Probably. there's a, an amazing postseason run that we don't anticipate. <laughs> I mean, if, if the Mets go 35-0 and 0 the rest of the way, it's not out of the possibility. That's not what I'm holding out for. I think there are just enough starts left that Jacob DeGrom, if he wins them all, gets to 15 wins. I think. I Matt might be wrong on that. I He may have enough starts, yeah. but... Um, Let's just hope he gets to 10. Yeah, okay. That's probably... Let's just double-digit wins for Jacob DeGrom, who's having an all-time season. Realistic expectations from a Met fan? Nine. Nah. Well, it's nah. realistic Jacob DeGrom gets to nine wins. and nah, he's. I want 15. I want them all. He's currently 8-8. Eight and eight. Imagine, like, I know we're going to wrap this up here, but just imagine you are Jacob DeGrom... What are you saying in your head about your teammates? It's like, really, guys? You can't do anything for me? I think he's saying all things being equal, it's better than being in Cincinnati. True. Um, Speaking of our old buddy Matt Harvey, um, there was talk that Matt Harvey was very close to going to Milwaukee. The Brewers claimed him off waivers, but apparently they couldn't work out a deal. And it looks like Cincinnati is committed to holding on to Harvey, at least for the rest of this year. He's a free agent. Well, I think there's a difference between committed to holding on and there's nothing they can do with him. <laughs> right. But I, it's curi- I'm curious to see where Matt Harvey ends up next year. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Harvey, again, I wish you well, buddy. Hope you're doing okay. I'm happy to see that he has become an effective Major League pitcher again. Um I'm always going to hold out hope that Matt Harvey just finds 2015 Matt Harvey again. Um, in the American League. In, yeah, in the American League on a team that will not play the Mets. Yes. Um, because it will be... Look, I'm still stung by Doc Gooden throwing a no-hitter as a Yankee. Yeah. <laughs> that still makes me mad. And you know what? Good for Doc. And I listened to that game on the radio. Mm-hmm. Was that 96? Anyway, it's best that we not talk let's about not it anymore. Let's not do all that. Matt Harvey to the Angels. Let's let's do that. That'll work out. That'll work out. All right, let's wrap this up. Jay, it's been a good talk. Great to talk to you, as ever. See you at the baseball movies. Have a good night.